Hey there, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? On the 27th of May, Colombia held perhaps its most peaceful election in the last 50 years. Electoral participation increased following the peace deal with FARC, and this seems to have inaugurated a new era in Colombian politics. The candidate of the right, Ivan Duque, supported by former President Álvaro Uribe, won the runoff election on the 17th of June. But despite that, things might not be all that bad for the left. Joining us today to help us clear through the morass of Colombian politics is Pablo Uribe, a Colombian journalist who writes on football and politics and is currently in Russia covering the World Cup. Hi everyone, this is Alex Hochuli. We have this week the full complement of the Alpha Bunga Bunga crew. We have Ben Fogel, who I think is currently in Madrid. Is that right, Ben? Yes, I am. Uh, Spain are playing tonight against Iran. I think my sympathies are more Iranian than Spanish, but I don't really know why. So I'm, <laughs> I'm for Iran. <laughs> yeah, making yourself popular there. Uh, we also have Phil Cunliffe, who's in Canterbury. Phil, who's, uh, I think, studiously avoiding any World Cup stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I have um, no interest whatsoever in football or the World Cup. So I'm glad to be that we're talking about something else today. <laughs> Phil making himself uh, resoundingly anti-popular, as usual. <laughs> Yeah, I'm an anti-populist. I think that's my that's my line in politics in general. Might as well right. join like one of these new Labour think tanks and uh, complain about <laughs> European populism and Brexit. <laughs> Zing. Um, and finally, we have George Hoare, who's in London. Uh, how's things, George? Yeah, hello from the home of football, to which uh, football <laughs> is football is coming home, as as we we all know. We've all seen the memes. So you've got to do the chant, George. You've got to do the chant. I'm not. Uh, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Have, I mean, you know, Panama is a real team to beat. You know, you already put a canal through the defense. <laughs> so All right. Um, guys, we're talking about Colombia this week. Uh, the elections just happened, as you heard right now in the introduction. Um, I guess the question is for listeners who might not have necessarily the greatest interest or knowledge in Colombia. Why does Colombia matter globally? What is interesting about it? And I guess... Um, I'll come to Ben because he's probably best placed to have a comment on that. Well, Colombia is somewhat of an exemption uh, <clears throat> amongst its uh, sort of the instability and uh, you know panic imposed by its neighbors, particularly those that followed the Pink Tide. Uh, Colombia is portrayed as sort of a model of a exception, a more stable, more responsible government who is adhered to neoliberalism, who is having an economic success success while its neighbors are mired in poverty and unemployment. But this doesn't quite capture the facts. Colombia was the home to a still continuing uh, civil war, which is the longest civil war in the Western Hemisphere, which has seen hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dead. It is still the most deadly country in the world to be a trade unionist or leftist activist. Dozens are slaughtered every year by uh, paramilitary militias often mired in the drug trade, who specialize in terrorizing villages of campesinos with chainsaws and who are uh, embedded in everything Colombian politics from the military aid they receive from the U.S. to ecotourism, which is their particular uh, new scam of laundering money. But 
Uh, more so than that, uh, I think Colombia is one of the sort of nightmarish stories portrayed as a success. In essence, it's a country. It's the only Latin American country without experience a leftist government. Yeah, that's that's the interesting I, thing. It's it's really remarkable uh, when you point at examples um, today, and I think we'll come to discuss this with Pablo hopefully. That you know Venezuela acts as the great boogeyman um, in in Latin America, but actually in some ways, um, Colombia should be the opposite um, sort of boogeyman. Yeah, I think at, at the same time we've also got some quite crude images of uh, Colombian society portrayed in particularly some popular culture. Um, like uh, Gabriel Garcia well. Marquez, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, well, I was thinking more of, of, of narco trafficking. So it'd be good to hear from. I'm really looking forward to this hearing from Pablo a little bit more um, detail about actually the the, the election and then the consequences, I guess, and some of the history too. The other thing I think, which is part of um, what makes Colombia interesting more broadly, is you have this prolonged one of the few um, Cold War era conflicts that's been prolonged well past the end of the Cold War. Um, but also the referendum on the peace deal. So the peace deal a few years back with that uh, the government tried to cut with the FARC and was initially rejected by the voters. And so I think it falls into a pattern of um, referendums that were strongly put forward by governments over very important um, fundamental political matters within the country and then were um, surprisingly rejected by the voters. So it's, um, I think, part of the referendum, kind of the problematic referendum, unexpected results politics that has been happening all over the world um, in Europe, Americas and in South America as well. All fascinating strands to pull out. And uh, I'm going to hand over now to Ben, who's going to conduct the interview with Pablo. Pablo, uh, I hate to interrupt your uh, World Cup celebrations, but let's go back a couple of weeks. Can you just break down for us quickly what happened in the, in the Colombia election? Who won and what it means going forward for Colombian politics? Sure. Um, so uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the runoff for the presidential elections in Colombia was held, and uh, the winner was Ivan Duque, uh, who is from the Centro Democrático Party, who, which is a right-wing party in Colombia, and it's basically a party founded by former president Álvaro Uribe, who was president be- between 2002 and 2010, and who has um, very, very right-wing policies. And basically, Ivan Duque was um, an unknown senator one year ago, but uh, Uribe chose him as his appointed successor, to put it somehow. Um, and and he won, Duque won, because of the strength of Uribe's support, because he really didn't bring anything particular to the table, except for the fact that he... Uh, except for many of other Uribe's collaborators, is not being um, investigated for any criminal suspicious activities. So it's basically it was basically a safe choice. A uh, young guy who had very little experience in politics. He had spent 10 years uh, working in Washington for the um, uh, Inter-American Bank. And, um, and now he's our president, and he is, it's the first election... Um, basically that who wins on his name uh, because when he was elected senator he ran on a closed ballot so people just voted for the party and he was um, he wasn't inside of the list of the party so he ended up being a senator uh, so it's pretty much um, an enigma what's coming forward for Colombia but um, it's very likely that the real power behind Duque is going to be Uribe 
So with that in mind, can you just explain to us and our listeners a bit who is Uribe? I mean, uh, Uribe is known among many, depending who you ask, because some people still portray him as some sort of hero for his links to uh, the paramilitaries and, of course, even further back to the Medellin cartel. And he's uh, linked to numerous human rights violations and also, quite more recently, he attempted to sabotage the peace process. Can you explain to us who he is and what is his social base? Yes, uh, so Uribe, uh, uh, he basically grew up in a wealthy family in Medellin, in, in Colombia's second biggest city, uh, which probably many of you have heard of from Pablo Escobar's days. Um, and um, he uh, became a politician there. Um, he was mayor of Medellin, and, uh, but he was rel- relatively unknown in the national stage until 2002 where, when he ran for president and he won uh, on a platform that promised to uh, defeat militarily the left-wing FARC guerrilla um, that was still pretty active in the country. And the president before him, Andres Pastrana, had tried to create a peace deal with FARC, but it failed spectacularly. And it only helped uh, the FARC to get a bit stronger. And it was um, the popular opinion in the country was very, very stacked against um, the FARC guerrilla and peace solutions. And so when Uribe came with a militaristic um, uh, and bellic discourse, it was um, a huge success. He, he became a super popular president. Uh, actually, if I'm not mistaken, in 2002, he won uh, in the first round of uh, voting, which I think is that's the only thing that has ever happened in Colombia. And uh, he he did he does have some um, alleged links to uh, the Medellin cartel because before uh, becoming the mayor of Medellin, he, he was um, the head of the National Aviation Institute, uh, which was the, the agency in charge of giving per- permits to airplanes to take off or to land. And during that time, a lot of the planes used by the Medellin cartel got permits. And so a lot of people have denounced that this is probably because um, Alvaro Uribe's father uh, had links uh, to people in the Medellin cartel. Alvaro Uribe's father was a landowner in, in Antioquia, the region where Medellin is. And um, uh, a lot of people allege that uh, that uh, Alvaro Uribe's father was uh, was working together with uh, the people from the Medellin cartel to expand his, his land and expand his businesses in Antioquia. Uh, this is uh, These are all things that have been, been brought up again and again, but that have not been legally proved yet, and Uribe has uh, clung on to the fact that there's no, uh, there, there has been no legal resolution in this to um, attack those who, who criticize his government, uh, making it look as a, as a political persecution. Um, but there are things that are certainly true about Uribe's government, which was, which is, for example, that uh, at least 3,000 civilians were killed by, by the National Army because there was a policy in place that um, if, um, if an army brigade or an army division could show that they have been killed a lot of guerrillas, they would get some privileges. They would get a day off for vacations. They would get 
a free meal, they would get a promotion or something like that. But instead of trying to fight the guerrillas, they went out to look for poor people in Bogota suburbs mostly, and they would they would offer them jobs, but they then they would put them in vans, drive them to the other side of the country. They would make them wear guerrilla clothes, and then they would shoot them and make them look as the, as if they were guerrilla uh, guerrilla ah. fighters being killed. So um, just to move forward a little bit. Uh, given that, the other thing that happened in this election was the relatively good showing by the left. And now Colombia is possibly the only Latin American country not to have had a left-wing government or a sort of national developmentist uh, populist phase. But this election, uh, the, se the second place candidate was Gustavo Petro. Uh, can you just explain to us who he is, what is his politics, and what does this mean for the Colombian left going forward? Yes, this is true, and uh, Colombia has never had a left-wing government, and Petro is the left-wing candidate that has gathered the most votes in Colombian history uh, in this runoff. Um, and Petro, um, he was part of a different left-wing guerrilla group called M19, M19, uh, which they mobilized in 1990. And after that, Petro became a politician, um, uh, he started in his hometown in, in Zipaquira uh, as a local council person. And then uh, he was um, a congressperson for uh, for a few periods where he, he became really popular because of his um, denouncement of the Uribe government. And he also became a controversial controversial figure in, in the Colombian left because when he was... In, in Congress, Bogota had um, a left leftist mayor, but uh, Petro um, got uh, some documents that, that prove that um, Bogota's mayor back then, uh, Samuel Moreno, was stealing money from the from public infrastructure works, and he denounced denounced him, going against um, the United United faction that the left in Colombia was trying to build. So he created a lot of fractures for the left at that time. And he was uh, he basically resigned from Polo Democratico, which at that point was the biggest leftist organization in Colombia. Um, because uh, that mayor of Bogota, Samuel Moreno, was part of that government, of that uh, party, sorry. And he didn't want to be part of that party, and that party didn't want him to be part of the party anymore because he, they felt that Petro was betraying them. But in, in, in any case, it was proven afterwards that Samuel Moreno was indeed stealing money and he was um, deposed as a mayor. And the next in the next elections for Bogota mayor, Petro won and he became mayor of Bogota. But he also had a very controversial controversial run. Um, he was uh, deposed as a mayor, but it was something to do with uh, contracts in um, garbage disposal in Bogota, and it was seen by Petro and his supporters as a political persecution uh, from the country's ombudsman, who is, uh, at that point, was a man called Alejandro Doñez, who is a very, very far, far right-wing person, a guy who used to burn books when he was in college, uh, who is in a very, very fanatical conservative faction of the Catholic Church and there was a political a fight between them and so 
Petro was deposed and he was reinstated, and this happened for a while until at the end Petro couldn't finish his term as mayor. But many people in the Colombian left, uh, in the Colombian left, still saw it as a form of political persecution of the left. And when Petro announced that he was running for president, he immediately started uh, getting good good poll numbers. Um, um, just just to jump in on this, uh, uh, Philip had a question. Uh, Philip, can you uh, come in and uh, ask Pablo? Yeah. Hi, Pedro. It's, it's Pedro. Jesus, sorry, Pablo. <laughs> I was listening to hearing the story about Pedro. Um, I, I wanted to ask about the peace deal with the FARC, because this is the big story that came prior to the elections, and it's the big kind of international story, which has been in everyone who knows anything about Colombia from the outside will have heard about the um, political deal with the FARC. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about, um, a bit of, give us a bit of background on the peace deal with the FARC, maybe tell us a little bit about its political effects, and what, is, what has happened in those areas that the FARC have vacated since the deal was cut? Yeah, well, um, so the deal was uh, struck in 2016 between the government of current president Juan Manuel Santos and, and the FARC guerrilla. Uh, even though um, there was uh, a vote call to see if the Colombian people approved or not of the peace deal, and it was uh, the peace deal was narrowly defeated. But uh, the Colombian law didn't demand this vote to to be to be held. So the president just uh, changed that a little bit, and then he approved it. Uh, but still, the political effect has been mostly that. There has been a huge political division um, in the country between those supporting the peace deal and those who oppose it, uh, which ended up being crucial in the in the elections um, because um, basically a lot of people saw the election between Duque and Petro an election between someone who wants to drastically change and drastically uh, reduce the impact of the peace deal, which is Duque, and someone who has committed himself to uh, maintain the progress made by by the, uh, the peace deal, which was Petro. And to your question about uh, what has happened in the areas located at FARC, by FARC, well, that depends. In some areas, um, there has been a lot of prosperity, um, especially some touristic areas that were inaccessible before because of the presence of FARC. Now some people are able to go over there and um, and just have a vacation in some parts of the very nice Colombian nature. In some other areas, especially along the Pacific coast, uh, right-wing um, criminal groups have been trying to step in and take over the um, drug, um, the drug operation that the FARC left behind. Uh, but also another left-wing guerrilla, uh, the ELN, the National Liberation Army, has been trying to get into some parts where the FARC has uh, has vacated. I wanted to I want to bring in Alex at this point because he has some further questions about um, the wider wider uh, background to Colombian politics and what's happening. 
Alex, over to you. Yeah, hi, Pablo. This is Alex. Uh, I wanted to ask you, I mean, as regular listeners will know, I'm based in Brazil. And of course, the big story here for the past four years have been the massive uh, anti-corruption investigations, uh, which primarily hinged on um, a couple of contractors, uh, in particular Odebrecht. Um, And this, of course, spilled over into many other countries where Odebrecht had operations. So I wanted to ask, to what extent Lava Jato, the anti-corruption investigations, had it has excuse me, have had an effect on Colombian politics? Well, it seemed like it didn't have any real effect in Colombian politics because um, four years ago, in the previous presidential elections, both candidates, Juan Manuel Santos and Oscar Iván Zuloga, who was Uribe's appointed successor back then, both of them were um, were uh, entangled in the Lava Chato scandal. Uh, apparently, both of them and the representatives had had meetings with uh, other Brecht representatives, and it seems like both of them received money from other Brecht. So it just made like one side call the other names. Like you, you, your candidate received money. Oh yeah, but your candidate also received money. So it kind of like leveled out. And in this election, um, Ivan Duque was proven to have met with other Brecht representatives. A few months back, but it didn't really hurt his image or his voting at all. It wasn't really like a topic of discussion in media or in political circles. It was just like uh, accepted corruption, just like the way mm. things happen. So I guess there's a sense that yeah, if if, if everyone's corrupt, it doesn't really uh, work as a as a hammer with which to beat your opponent. Yeah, exactly. Pablo, let's dive a little bit deeper into Colombia's history, which is. Pretty complicated, uh, yes. but I mean, say the least. But I mean, and of course, we could start a little bit sooner. But uh, can you just give us some background about the nature of the Colombian Civil War, if you want to call it that? And uh, I mean, we can start with say, I mean, this is again a huge topic, uh, <laughs> La Violencia, and also how that tied into the current uh, conflict and. Uh, also, could you tell us what happened to FARC and other guerrilla movements the last time in the 1980s that tried to go into electoral politics? Huge topic. Yes, yes, uh, yes this is very huge. I'll try to be as brief as possible. But basically, uh, in the 1950s, um, there was a huge civil conflict between supporters of the Liberal Party and supporters of the Conservative Party which were back then the two largest parties in the country. Also, and, for our listeners, Colombia is one of the few Latin, the few nations in the world which had an armed wing of the Liberal Party. Yes. <laughs> um, so both of them, then the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party, had um, uh, illegal militias that were went around towns killing people for voting for the other party. And... It was a time of like um, so much violence that we know it in Colombian history as La Violencia, or the violence with capital V. And it happened that um, uh, in 1953 we had a dictatorship, but it was uh, basically pretty much everyone on the political um, on the political circle of the country agreed on, on having a dictatorship because they saw it as some sort of neutral compromise and um, this guy Gustavo Rojas Pinilla was a dictator for four years but he agreed to leave power and to go back to democratic democratic elections 
But when we went back to democratic elections, the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party agreed to share power. So one president would be from the Liberal Party and then the next would be from the Conservative Party. And that happened for 16 years. And um, that's a period of history known as the National Front. But when that, while that was happening, uh, people more to the left of the Liberal Party felt like they were being left out. Like they... Uh, that um, a lot of uh, popular manifest political manifestations were not being taken into account into how the, 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 the country could work. So also inspired by the Cuban Revolution, which happened around this time, uh, the FARC was created uh, by former liberal uh, armed militias in the region of Colombia called Tolima. Uh, and basically they started with the aim of eventually taking power through violence and toppling the government and installing a communist government. Uh, Pablo, I just want to ask you about this. I mean, is in part the relative uh, longevity and success of the FARC uh, inspired by sort of the extreme nature of repression and violence used against uh, peasants by landowners in these regions? That's a huge factor um, um, because uh, the FARC um, especially in its beginnings, was mostly comprised by by peasants who were dissatisfied with the way the government, um, in all of its levels, national and local, were handling land issues. And they always got support, um, not only from peasants, but also from intellectuals, up until maybe the late 70s, when the FARC started uh, to get into the drug businesses. Um, it was pretty common to see intellectuals in Bogota or in Medellin supporting FARC. Uh, but I think also another very, very important factor is the Colombian geography, because FARC, um, FARC's main, main hideout is a canyon that it's uh, pretty much inaccessible. Like, um, it's impossible to get there by helicopter, uh, and they gain a huge advantage militarily from that. Yeah. So uh, from what I understand, uh in the climate where narco-politics uh, and the influences between landowners and the new cocaine traders starts to come into being through uh, organizations such as the Medellin Cartel, uh, which is sort of background to this, in the 1980s, after sort of 20 years of civil war, uh, Colombia's guerrilla movements try to make a play at electoral politics. What happened then? Well, I think first you have to understand that for the first 20 years or so, FARC was a very small group that uh, wasn't really a national issue. Um, but when the the, um, the narco-politics started to happen, uh, and the FARC, and not, not only the FARC, but also many other illegally armed groups started to get more money from drugs, uh, they, started to get, they started to get really big. And at some point, the FARC felt like they could probably finance a party um, and trying to get into um, uh, into um, uh, normal politics. Just what like year is this? Electoral politics. Uh, this was uh, 1985, around there, more or less. Uh, so they created a party called Union Patriotica. But uh, by then, the right-wing paramilitaries had already starting, started to be informed. And um, uh, a lot of people in the national political establishment didn't see 
no, I mean, sorry, a lot of people in the political establishment saw a left-wing party as a, as a menace to the status quo. And the, um, the Union, Union Patriotica party started to be uh, basically assassinated completely. So from what um, I understand, basically almost everybody in the party who was running for elections was wiped out between a coalition of paramilitaries, uh, sort, of off to, um, sort of security forces and drug traffickers. Yes, this is correct. I mean, that's just incredible. Like, uh, imagine a whole party just being completely wiped out. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, uh, during the peace process uh, recently, uh, one of the demands that the FARC gave was that um, the Union Patriotica, uh, or basically the Union Patriotica legal status as a party to be reinstated. Um, because uh, to be a political party legal in Colombia, you need to have at least a certain amount of elected officials. Of course, Union Patriotica doesn't have any because most of them were killed, including presidential candidates. And so um, now that Union Patriotica is a party again because of the peace deal. Back then, um, it was uh, basically a massacre. It was, um, I mean, some people in Colombia would describe it as a, as a genocide, as a just the targeting of a group of people associated by their political beliefs. I mean, just to jump forward a bit uh, as well, I mean, to, before we go to the next question, because George wanted to come in, uh, from what I understand as well, um, the FARC, in somewhat contrary to other trajectories of Latin American guerrilla groups, actually increased in power in the 90s, but at the same time, under the previous president as well, elements of this extreme right-wing uh, paramilitaries, who I understand was also heavily involved in the drug trade, were incorporated into mainstream politics. Yes. Um, uh, in the 90s, uh, the FARC group, bec uh, mainly because uh, they financed themselves through uh, drug trades, and and they also outsmarted these, the strategies of the uh, Colombian army. And so the Colombian army, in, in some parts, this, this is not like an official policy, but a, a lot of the Colombian army started working together with the paramilitaries to defeat their common enemy, which was the FARC. And in a lot of towns, both the paramilitaries and the Colombian army went into the towns and started, um, started to uh, execute people who were suspected of being guerrilla leaders. I wanted to just pick up the... Um... I wanted to maybe just think of uh, put the question of Colombia, I guess, in a wider context. Uh, all of this, we've been talking about La Violencia and um, the armed militias and the various kind of uh, the way in which politics are so heavily militarized. Is I mean, how far is Colombia exceptional in that regard? How much is it the standout country in the region? Um, given the extent of the, the kind of the duration of the violence and the extent of the interpolitical violence, can you maybe put it a bit in a regional context in terms of Colombian politics and violence? Yes, well, it, it's, it is exceptional in, in the sense of the length um, because, uh, well, the conflict between the FARC and the Colombian state is the longest uh, ever, I think, in the Western Hemisphere which was, I think it's 55 years it officially lasted. 
but uh, other countries in in South America and in Central America as well have had um, similar situations, even though shorter. Uh, Peru, our, our neighbor, had um, similar issues with uh, the Sendero Luminoso, the Shining Path guerrilla. There was a guerrilla in, in Uruguay, the Tupamaros. Um, Brazil also had its own guerrilla, um, as, as Benjamin knows. Um, and, um, and, and, and now I, I think in, in Central America, of course, the, the Sandinistas were there. Wait, um, I didn't, Benjamin wasn't a guerrilla, was he? No, no. No, no. He, I mean, the closest to a guerrilla I got was my pain at the death of Harambe. Um, Pablo if I can actually jump in here to maybe add a little thing uh, onto the back of Phil's question about Colombian exceptionalism Um, to put this in a a sort of global historical context for our listeners because it's more kind of on the thematics of our podcast in general um, there's a feeling that I mean, it's often said that in Latin America, the Cold War never really ended. And I think that's probably no truer than for uh, than for Colombia, uh, where this kind of the, the where the civil war um, seems to be more of a legacy of the Cold War than than anything else uh, in the in the region. And um, how do you sort of interpret this? Um, and maybe one way to link this as well is to talk a little bit about the influence of uh, the example, the negative example, perhaps, of Venezuela in the region and how that's used politically, um, often by the right, as a sort of um, um, as a sort of monster to point to uh, to say, you know, if you elect any sort of leftist, it'll end up uh, in the situation that Venezuela finds itself today. Yes, um, yes, I agree with your um, uh, with the Cold War Cold War statement. In the sense that um, the Colombian government has always been a close ally of the United States, and uh, a lot of leftist movements have been um, targeted, even even when they're not communist, um, or even when they're just like um, progressives or social democrats, they've been targeted as as communist, um, as uh, like the red menace, as things like that, and. And this has happened since the Cold War, and it still happens right now. It happened during the uh, peace deal vote uh, through WhatsApp. All the, a lot of the memes that were shared um, were basically saying like, if you if you vote for the peace deal, we're, you're gonna turn our country into a new Venezuela. And by Venezuela, people mean, of course, the the, the collapse of the Maduro economy. Uh, which people associate that with, like, uh, as you say, like every leftist uh, alternative would would be uh, economic disaster, mm-hmm. like in Venezuela. And this was a theme that was repeated also during the presidential election. And Petro was um, had the stigma of being a leftist, so people would uh, use a word that is not really any kind of political concept, but it's Castrochavismo, mm-hmm. which means like. Which means, like, uh, you know, uh, the Castros in Cuba and Chavez in Venezuela. Do you want to be like them? Then vote for Petro. And, and, do, you, and, and do you think that had country, a do you think that had a big effect in the election? Was that a significant factor? I think, yes, I think so. I, I think so. I think it's I think it had a very significant factor because uh, I saw even within some of my family WhatsApp groups, 
people repeating those those things kind of like mantras like we don't want to be a Venezuela we're gonna vote for Duque mm-hmm. and I saw a lot of people on the streets or in, in interviews uh, that you see on the, on the news and the newspapers uh, I think um, also uh, because of the economic crisis in Venezuela a lot of Venezuelans are have been displaced and are living in Colombia and you always meet Venezuelans um, asking for money or for help in, in the in the buses or in the streets and uh, that's like a um, very, very powerful image for people who associate um, left, leftist politics with the Venezuelan uh, disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess, well, the, the the Latin American family WhatsApp group is something worthy of study in its own right as well. <laughs> oh, it's Latin American family, what might even be worse. <laughs> uh, but George, you had a question. Can you come in here? Yeah, hi, hi, Pablo. Yeah, so I guess just to maybe zoom out a little bit, um, I think it's probably the case that many foreigners' images of Colombia have, have sort of been polluted through some of the pop culture images, maybe... Um, particularly around the, the drug trade, and there's there's a, the Netflix show Narcos or Narcos, as I've even heard it pronounced. Um, could you maybe? Unfortunately, t- directed by Brazilian. Is it? Ah, didn't didn't uh, didn't yeah. know that. Um, and, and really, Pablo, we we do want to know what you think of Narcos, whether or not oh, it's yeah. a good show. Um, but yeah, so I mean, could you just maybe as a bit of a corrective to this? Could you sort of maybe summarize for our listeners a little bit what's the actual state? of narco-trafficking and maybe also the influence of US drug policy here because I think there is a bit of a, um, a heroic fantasy of, uh, of Escobar that um, the Western media or whoever's Brazilian directors, whoever's responsible, have seemed to, to create. Um, well, I think right now um, drug traffic in Colombia is um, isolated into mostly rural, mostly isolated areas of the country. Uh, mm. It's not like you see in the show Narcos that uh, Medellin was basically run by by drug dealers. Uh, this is not what uh, the case anymore. But um, there's surely um, an influence in um, in the poorer suburbs of big cities. But mostly uh, drug trafficking happens in small towns, especially the ones that in, that are in drug uh, trading routes and. Uh, for example, in Buenaventura, which is a sizable town in the Pacific Ocean, uh, is uh, very chaotic right now because of all of the groups that are trying to get a hold of the drug trafficking routes that leave from leave from that port. Um, uh, but there's no th- right now. There's no one that has kind of like the charisma or the power that Escobar had during his time. There's no like no famous drug dealers. Uh, you don't know really the names of or or the histories of, or the legends of drug dealers. It's just uh, it's more of at least we think about it now more as just like um, petty crime, but in, in a big scale, I guess. More more sort of decentralized, less in in one sort of iconic figure. Exactly, and I mean in terms of the U.S. drug policy, just want to jump in there. I read uh, that, in fact, the cumulative yield of uh, um, sort of cocoa uh, crops and cocaine uh, exports from Colombia had actually gone up over in recent years, despite all the you know 
model champion of Plan Colombia by the US. Yes, uh, this is true. Uh, we all, we I think we have a, a small competition with Peru about who is the biggest coca produ- uh, cocaine producer, and I think we're winning right now. Are you better at football? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but yeah, ba- basically, Plan Colombia did not reduce the amount of drugs uh, produced in the country. Instead, it also increased the amount of people killed in the country. Um, so at least uh, from my point of view, it's a, it's a total failure. But uh, but the government still, uh, because the government is so close with the United States, they have to praise it and they, or may, maybe they praise it, uh, honestly, maybe they think they, it has done good, good things. Uh, because it, it did help the Colombian military to become more powerful, get us, they got us more planes and more helicopters and more, more things like that. I think, thank you very much, Pablo. I think we have uh, one more important question we have for you, uh, considering you're in Russia. Well, actually, we have two, we have two questions about this. One, uh, how would you rate Russia's hosting of the World Cup so far? I mean, so much of the Western media is informed by the sort of moral panic about Russia and its evil empire undermining elections. And secondly, how far will Colombia go in the World Cup? Do you have confidence in this team? Okay, so for the first question, I think the organization has been perfect. I never had, I've never run into any problems anywhere. And um, uh, the people here are, are very nice, uh, which I think that's also a different stereotype about Russians that they're very uh, distant and and not trusting, but but it hasn't proved true for me in this trip because everyone has been really helpful. Uh, sometimes we don't really understand each other, but there's always a way of communicating. Um, and there's there's what what I found what I have found quite uh, interesting is I thought that uh, Russia was a football. Crazy country, football crazy country, but not so much. A lot of the Russians I've met, they told me like, yeah, football is okay, but uh, I really like hockey. <laughs> and it's, and it says, it's nice that you have you get to see your team, but uh, then some of them don't really care at all. Some of them are really into it. Uh, a lot of them were dancing salsa with us last night. So will Colombia qualify? I I am I am a very anxious person, so I don't know because I I thought I thought we. Uh, I got I got tickets for the three games and I and I thought oh we're gonna lose all three games but it's gonna be fine I'm gonna get to know Russia travel a little bit we'll have fun now yes yesterday we um, well Colombia outplayed Poland totally and um, I think I think right now I think because maybe because I'm still a bit hungover from the celebration I think we can beat Senegal and we can probably beat England. Okay, thank you very much, Pablo. Uh, it was great having you on. Okay, thank you, guys. All right, this is Alex again. Uh, we're going to have a little chat amongst ourselves to draw out some interesting strands from that interview that Ben conducted with Pablo. Um, I guess the first question is, is this the termination, finally, of the Civil War and a kind of new era for Colombia, or is it still very much unresolved? Any thoughts on this? Well, I think it's very much unresolved. Clearly, Uribe, who has the blood of thousands on his hands, is still perhaps the major figure in Colombian politics. And he is still calling the shots. With him in charge, after he deliberately uh, scuppered 
the attempt to make a peace deal for his own sort of selfish reasons. Uh, who knows what's going forward? I mean, it's very much the case in in some of the areas, as Pablo told us, that uh, FARC is vacated, that peasants are being slaughtered and the paramilitaries are moving in. So it could be very much that uh, this could be another false dawn in Colombian politics. And despite positive electoral showings, uh, this could be another turn to the to outright repression and this dangerous link, which is so common in Colombia between organized crime, right-wing violence, landowners, and politics. And secondly, I would also like to say, I mean, the other thing that came out was that uh, Colombia and Mexico really seem to be the exceptions in terms of uh, the pink tide, but they're both having it to different degrees. Of course, in Mexico, which we'll discuss soon on the show, the leftist candidate seems almost certain to win. But in Colombia, the left put up a pretty good showing, despite having all the institutional elements of Colombian politics, from media to uh, you know the state and the military uh, allied against them. So uh, I, perhaps there's a hope in the future the left could emerge as a real force in Colombian politics outside of uh, armed conflict. Mm. I, and I guess, I mean, this is the, the point that we discussed during the interview as well, which is this kind of Cold War, which seems to drag on in a sort of distorted form and without the Cold War container continuing to give it force. Uh, I guess in some ways one could think of, if one thinks of the post-Cold War period, which, you know, was lived through very in very clear terms in, in North America uh, and in Europe and elsewhere, in Latin America and certainly in Colombia, that period seems not to have happened. I was just going to say I was disappointed we didn't get to talk about 100 years of solitude. <laughs> I always like asking Colombians what they make of that. Well, you know, uh, as I mean, the other thing about Colombia, which I think uh, more, more so than uh, perhaps other American countries, is that like this, this lame uh, sort of stereotype about magical realism, how it's impossible to understand through rational means, continues to be to the overwhelming uh, sort of way of explaining it. And what that does is it lets people off the hook, whereas our discussion veered into the United States and other powers have been deliberately funding this conflict and channeling money towards the worst, most murderous forces. And, and this is portrayed as sort of sort of some intrinsic machismo and violence which plagues this tropical land. Mm. So we're, we're not magical realists. We're I don't know, Lukacian realists or some other sort of of realists. And I think That's we'll have to we'll have to come back. To, <laughs> you'll have to we'll have to unpack that on a future episode. I was thinking um, about that for a few minutes and couldn't come up with a, <laughs> an alpha punga punga pun. So, so thinking actually of what is uh, coming up, we've got episodes coming up on Mexico, as Ben already mentioned in the region. Uh, but more immediately, we'll have an episode out next week on the recent Turkish elections, and so we've got all that to look forward to. Uh, for now, I just want to thank again Pablo Uribe, uh, the journalist, Colombian journalist we spoke to, and it's uh, bye from myself, Alex Ojuli, and the rest of the Alpha Bunga Bunga crew. See you later. Bye-bye.